podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody. This is Midnight on Earth. How are you doing? This is your host, Jake Weaver, and I'm here today with the Oregon director of the Mutual UFO Network. His name is Tom Bowden. Hello, Tom. Hi. It's so good to be here with you today. We are sitting in Gresham, Oregon, on Tom's beautiful porch and his beautiful home here. We're social distancing. We're doing everything correctly, and we are here having a wonderful interview. I want to tell you, listeners, what if you're wondering what is the Mutual UFO Network? Well, According to Wikipedia, the Mutual UFO Network is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization composed of civilian volunteers who study reported UFO sightings. It is one of the oldest and largest organizations of its kind, claiming more than 4,000 members worldwide, with chapters and representatives in more than 43 countries in all 50 states, including Hawaii and Alaska. The organization has been criticized for its focus on pseudoscience, but whatever, because Critics are just terrible. Now, MUFON, let me tell you about what MUFON is to me. MUFON is to me the people that have been avant-garde leaders collecting data, a special kind of data, data that's out of this world. They've been collecting data for a really long time. When you see a UFO, when you have a UFO sighting, you call MUFON. MUFON has qualified investigators that will connect with you, get back to you, and will catalog your experience and then catalog other people's experiences and then use that data to show that, you know, there is extraterrestrial life out here. Now, we have Tom Bowden with us. He's got 45 years, according to his bio on the Oregon MUFON website. He has 45 years of UFO research and investigative experience. He became interested in UFOs as a youth, Joined the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. Probably looks sounds like the pre-MUFON. Is that that probably right? They existed at the same time. Uh, uh, Ap- APRO came first. Uh, MUFON sprung up about 1969, but APRO went back into I believe the 1950s. Don't not sure of the exact date. Okay, but uh, they. Uh, and, but uh, April ceased to exist with the death of the two directors first, uh, Jim Lorenzen and uh, Lorenzen and uh, and his wife, uh, Carol Lorenzen, uh, died uh, she, uh, only a couple of years after Jim, and that was the end of the organization. Okay, well then you continued on with MUFON, and since two thousand one, you've been a part of Oregon MUFON, and you've become assistant, and then eventually you became state director for Oregon MUFON's chapter in 2003. Is that correct? Uh, According to your website, it is. (laughs) I did. uh, Okay, I did not write that. (laughs) I uh, think I became the Oregon state director in uh, 2002. Okay, so 2002. It's a little little ahead, 2003, 2002 is the actual day. But I want to talk about what 
as a person, what, where did your interest in UFOs and this type of, uh, you know, this type of subject, where, where did that begin? Well, um, I've got to go back to childhood, really. Um, I loved science fiction, especially the ones about space travel and, you know, alien races and things like that. Uh, I remember my family knew this because one year for Christmas, I got a little uh, flying saucer launcher toy. Uh, and, you know, I, I love playing with that thing uh, just because it was, you know, fun to launch these little flying saucers off this thing. Uh, and in, in uh, elementary school, we had a little newsletter that came out. It was called The Weekly Reader. I think they might still have it. I don't know, but they pass this out once a week to us, and it had little news clips and stuff in it, and it had a a few stories about UFOs, uh, flying saucers, as they were called back in the fifties, and uh, I was very interested in those stories. Uh, uh, mostly, I remember this when I lived in Texas, and uh, oddly enough. We lived near an Air Force base. Well, the Air Force base actually is quite a ways from us, but our next-door neighbor was a master sergeant at Medina Air Force Base, which has been decommissioned. But at the time, and this was sort of a secret, although people knew this around town, Medina Air Force Base was a nuclear stockpile. And they would have visits from flying saucers. Really? Yes, and uh, when they'd have a, a... visit from one of these intrusions, our next-door neighbor sometimes would uh, be called up in the middle of the night, and he would hop in his car and drive like a bat out of hell out to the base where they would scramble jets. I don't think that, I don't know what kind of aircraft they had at Medina, but they had a, you know, there's there used to be like five or six active Air Force bases around San Antonio. There were at that time. There was Lackland, Kelly, and... Uh, uh, Randolph, and so uh, what do you think? Your, in your opinion, what do you think the interest was in that nuclear activity with the UFOs? Well, uh, if if you've studied the subject for a while, you're going to find that there's a a deep and long history of UFO activity uh, around nuclear. Uh, installations. Oh, definitely. I've heard that in the past. I've heard right. they fly over certain locations. They'll disassemble the or disable the nuclear weapons uh, yes. with some sort of electromagnetic technology. Yeah, and uh, you know, without getting into speculation about what the technology is, I'll just say that the military people who have had this happen have talked about it. And when when you when you look at reports like that. Uh, People like Robert Salas, uh, who went through this himself, and uh, other documented reports written up by people uh, that the authors of books about this stuff, like Robert Hastings, you realize that that these are uh, a small, they're a subset of the actual events because there's many of these events that no one has talked about. Because they were, they were not. First of all, they were not made public by the military, and the military people who experienced these things, many of them never wanted to talk about it. 
because they, you know, were, felt they were under security uh, oath oh, yeah. and so forth. So they, they would, they would, they would never talk about it. Yeah. They don't want to lose their career. I've come into right. that myself where people have disclosed certain things to me, but then off the record, you know, it has to be off the record because they don't want to jeopardize their career. They've worked so hard for it. It's, it's not worth it to them to jeopardize all their hard work. But that, that situation, those sightings that you were experiencing, that led you to eventually discover APRO? Um, yeah, I think uh, this, is, this is how it happened. When I was uh, in my early 20s, after college, I, uh, I had been starting in my college days i had happened upon some books on uh, paranormal subjects and started reading them and eventually i gravitated toward ufo's which kind of fit into with my childhood interest in uh uh movies and uh books about science fiction so uh i uh i looked in the back of one of the books and I saw a mention of Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. So I wrote to them, and I uh, joined. And all you had to do with them, if, if, if you sounded like you had some knowledge about UFOs, uh, they would say, well, if you send us a picture, we'll put it on an ID card, and you'll, you'll be a, a, a UFO investigator. You're an official Apple. investigator. And for that's Apple. what I did. <laughs> I lived in Oakland, California at the time. Uh, once I joined MUFON, I mean uh, APRO, sorry, I, I, uh, other people contacted me. People who were other APRO members got in touch with me and said, hey, you know, we're going to have meetings about once a month at so-and-so's apartment. Would you like to join us? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. So, uh we had meetings uh, with uh, several people who were APRO members, and one of them was a MUFON member and a MUFON investigator. So this one but, guy was the crossover guy. He was MUFON yeah, and APRO. Right. And so we we got together, and, you know, to in our little group, it didn't matter which organization people belonged to. That was immaterial. We just sure. were interested in subject matter. And so we went on a few field investigations around the Northern California area. This is Bay Area. Uh, you know, San Francisco Bay Area. We went on a few field investigations in that area for a few years, and it was pretty interesting. Uh, and then I got really interested in, like, family matters where our first son was born sure. and all that, Life. and I sort of stopped being so active with them, but I kept my APRO membership going. I was an APRO member until the organization died uh, okay. with the death of uh, yeah, you were the Lorenzo's. The founders. And they never created a board of directors or a, 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 a you know, any kind of uh, organizational structure yeah. for perpetuity. And so the organization was just uh, like a, you know, it was like a family business kind of thing, and it just went away. Um, now, after that, I didn't join MUFON right away. In fact, I didn't join MUFON until the year, year 2000. Uh, you know, during those years from about 85 to, uh, to about 2000, I was pretty involved in the family. We moved to Boise, Idaho during that time. I did a lot of family activities with my sons, and uh, and it wasn't until 
uh, they were in high school and, uh, they were all grown. Yeah. Grown up (laughs) enough that they weren't interested in having dad get involved in their stuff. So that's when I came back to the UFO field and I said, you know, I've been interested in this all, uh, all along. I had been, I've been, uh, trolling the used bookshops, trying to buy up, books on the subject and, and read them and uh, the during last that, few years. During that time? Yeah, that, during that time. Did you keep up with all the current events of UFO, ufology and the various I, sightings? I actually like that? was not aware of a bunch of stuff that happened between uh, about 1985 and 1995 or so. Oh, wow, that's it was a big like jump. a 10-year period when I was kind of out of the loop. But then in about 95, 96, I started paying more attention to it, was aware of some of the things that were going on. That's when I started buying the books and getting caught up on the subject. Sure. And then I, uh, year 2000, I just made a decision, oh, I'm going to join MUFON. And uh, that led me to be contacted by uh, Keith Rowell, who's uh, uh the guy that, that was my assistant state director for quite a while, and he's mostly responsible for the Oregon MUFON website. Yeah, I did notice that on the Oregon yeah. MUFON website. He is a webmaster, and you know what? Every time I see his name, my brain instantly goes to Roswell. I want to call him Keith Roswell. Oh, <laughs> but it's it's Keith funny. Roll. It's Keith Roll. Keith Rowell. It's Rowell, not no, Roswell. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, but... The, the, I want to emphasize something. Sure. Keith is a uh, an amazing resource uh, on an intellectual level about this subject. Uh, he studies it uh, as if it were a real academic subject. Like if there were a Ph.D. in ufology, he would have one. He'd have one. He'd have two. He'd yeah. have a postdoctorate. He'd have everything. Right, because he's the he's the he's the really brainiac of the our little organization. So you, in the Northwest, you feel like right. he's the brains, he's the hub. Oh, I, he's I the think so. UFO guru yeah. of the Northwest, but he keeps a very low profile. He would okay. never want to do a talk show like we're doing. Yeah, I remember you he, mentioned he that. He always, when when any any uh, offers come up, somebody wants to get a spokesperson, he always pitches it over to me. Okay. He says, Tom, that's that's your thing. He doesn't want to do that. But in our meetings, he used to go on and on and uh, explain to people how UFOs are part of what he calls the transpersonal world. And transpersonal psychology is an academic definition that some academic people came up with for the paranormal. Because the paranormal has a bad image among academics. Sure. So these people studied it in an academic framework and they call it transpersonal psychology. Trans meaning across or beyond. Personal meaning, well, personal. So transpersonal means beyond your normal everyday world. Something that's hidden or not arcane in, or not. Yeah, not, occult or just right. not defined by basic psychology. The, the right. Things that are outside of that. Right, and like, and so that's what uh, what he characterizes it at. He's not saying that that UFOs aren't real or anything like that. He's saying we don't understand the nature of UFOs unless we understand that they are part of this paranormal world. 
And there's a lot of uh, information that has come out uh, over the decades about UFOs in general that supports that conclusion 100%. There are so many of these encounters people have had with uh, UFOs where they get messages, telepathic messages, uh, either from the craft or uh, presumably from beings within the craft, or they're, they have an encounter with beings, you know, the humanoid beings uh, that we call aliens, not really because we know for sure where they come from, but because they're, for want of a better term, we call them aliens. If they've had a direct encounter, encounter with them, frequently there's telepathic communication going on. Nice. Uh, people have witnessed things such as teleportation, uh, uh, levitation of objects, um, things like that. So, so that means that, that UFOs can't be thought of as just simply nuts and bolts Hardware, right? It's energy, and they could it's be mul- they could be multidimensional. They could be using a form of physics that are beyond what our three dimensional physical understanding is. It could True. just be some whole other form of understanding, some other mechanism of getting from point A to point B faster than light travel. All those things, and we can even comprehend as humans. Yes, I agree. Have you had? Tell me about your sightings. Like, what are some of your? Tell me some of your best sightings. Tell me some of the things you've seen personally in your years doing work with APRO and MUFON. That's that's a problem because I've only had one uh, for sure sighting. Hey, one's better than none, and it's very <laughs> unremarkable. <laughs> it was a uh, okay. This is what was going on. Okay, in May, uh, two thousand. Five, I believe it is. I'm not sure if I have the right year, but there was a uh, sighting on the East Bank Esplanade along the uh, the uh, Willamette River. On the east side of the w- river, there's, you know, they built the walkways along the bank, the river there. I Two women were walking over there, and one of them had a digital camera that also took videos. They spotted an object uh you know uh, up uh, toward the toward the land side not over the river but the away from the river and they took still photos and a video of this object it was an elongated like cigar shaped object so in the process of investigating this Keith and I went to the east, east bank esplanade and we walked around there and we found the location where the photo was taken and we were looking at uh, the lay of the land there and the angles and noticing that there was, you know, uh, light poles and things next to the freeway ramp there. And then he looks up and he says, oh, look, what's that? And he points and I look and there it is, a little silver dot that is zooming around near the clouds. It zoomed into the clouds and that's it. I saw it for what? Maybe one second. That's pretty remarkable. Look, that's pretty remarkable. If you've got as far, because some people, they have sightings. I've never seen, personally, I've had about seven sightings in my life. One that I should have reported to MUFON was a couple of years ago in Sedona, Arizona. Um, but all the ones I've seen have been like uh, lights, right? So if you're seeing a craft in the daytime, enough to where you can make out it's a silver ball. Hey, man, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, well, sorry it didn't last longer. <laughs> honestly, I couldn't even say it was a craft. Uh, 
I I think it 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 was to me it was like a dot, a silver dot. Right, but you I did mean, see the silver, which is huge. Well, yeah, I, did. I mean it was reflective. Right. It was, uh, reflecting the sun. And you saw it moving around at high speeds. Yeah, it it was making quite a few maneuvers. Now, ordinarily I would think oh it was a mylar balloon. But it really seemed to be more directed motion, not just random. Right. There's a fluidity blown. to it that makes yeah. it seem like there's something going on. And Keith saw, it, Keith saw it longer than me. Now, here's something that Keith and I have talked about, and, and, and we sort of have agreed that this is true. Some people see multiple UFOs in their lives. Other people never see them. I'm one of the people that never sees them. The reason I saw it that day is because I was with Keith. He saw it first, <laughs> it was and his, he, he pointed it out to me. It was I his probably, energy. I probably would have never seen it if he hadn't, like, So he's got there. the UFO luck. He brought oh, you he along. Does. He brought you along for the ride, and he, you he got has, to see one. He has taken photos and videos of UFOs, yes, and, and so he's, he's, the, he's the UFO magnet. I'm not. But, okay, so let me ask you this. So now you've been involved with MUFON since 2002. We're now in the year 2020. That's 18 years locally as a director of Oregon MUFON. So yes. tell me some of the big cases, some of the, some of the things you've investigated locally that really uh, excited you. Well... <clears throat> And you can even start from recently and work backwards, whatever's good for you. Well, oh, <laughs> man. Let me, let me start with, with just now I am still in the process of investigating this. A guy submitted, he submitted five reports on each one on a different night. He uh, took photos of strange lights going over, and he says they're always going over. Uh, he's really into this. So he has a, a Canon EOS Rebel camera that he mounted on a uh, uh, a Cassegrain type telescope. If anyone knows what that is, he's kind of he's not really a a uh, astronomy buff so so much as he just really wants to catch, capture these UFOs. So he. Uh, set up his camera with this 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 telescope attached to like a super you know uh, telephoto lens, and he mounts it on a tripod and he goes out at night and he tries to capture the UFOs. Well, he's gotten some interesting pictures. I'm still in the process of analyzing them yet. I think they're unknowns, but I don't know yet for sure. I, I'm I have to try to I have to do the due diligence. I have to try to. Uh, rule out, you know, known objects, and I haven't gone through that process yet, so it's still. So that's a fresh one. That's yeah. a hot, hot on the pre- hot off the yes, presses, but yes. not there yet. Tell yeah. me some of the ones that you've investigated, maybe yeah. recently, that were just mind blowing. Yeah, has there I, been any? Or oh, there have been. Okay. Uh, I'll just mention that one I just mentioned was in Tillamook, the the five reports. All right, now, uh, down near Klamath Lake, uh. A gentleman and his friend were on an early morning fishing trip, and uh, like I, f- I forget now, it was four four thirty in the morning. Coming out of a place called Fort Klamath, which is a little town somewhere between uh, Klamath Falls and uh, uh, Medford, and 
it's near the top end of the north end of Klamath Lake. So they were uh, just driving through this town, and they suddenly saw a really bright, brightly lit object. I mean, they, they described it as like almost blindingly bright uh, in a field just beyond the trees. Uh, it was just above the tr- tree line uh, there at the edge of a field. And they didn't know what it was, but they kept looking and trying to speculate as to what it could be, farm equipment maybe, uh, aircraft, but it was very strange because they said, why would it have such bright lights on it? Well, they lost sight of it. They st- uh, turned around and went back and made a turn on a side road and looked, and it was gone. But they were so riveted by this that they had to file a report. And the one guy, the main guy who reported it, he's he worked as a commercial artist. So he had quite the ability to depict this in an illustration. And he worked on it and he did a painting and sent me a, a, a picture of it. And it was like a, I guess you could call it a chevron-shaped object. It had like two legs uh, that had bright lights all up and down them. And it had a central light. And it had a rectangular light somewhere in the, at the apex of the, of the chevron. And then it had a stripe-like beam of light going down the middle. Uh, oh. Anyway, it was That's wild. fascinating. Yeah. And how about, uh, how about some abduction cases? How, do we have any abduction cases locally? Oh, yes, we do. Okay. Uh, and um, there's this, it's very difficult to talk about this subject because a lot of people don't really understand how involved these cases can be. Uh, there's a gentleman down in uh, Grants Pass who reported that he thinks he was abducted because he remembers driving uh, between Grants Pass and, and Medford, and he had a uh, he had a missing time episode, and then he uh, but he does remember seeing the craft. He was driving on uh, I five, and he can't figure out what happened. Uh, to the time, uh, but he had a history of humanoid encounters going all the way back to childhood. These are the types of people that we typically encounter as being abducted. It's people that have a lifelong history of strange encounters. Do you think it has something to do with potentially monitoring of specific genetics? Like, let's say there's an interjection, like maybe five, four hundred years ago, of a specific DNA strain, you know, in an abduction scenario, let's say someone gets abducted, you know, they get some kind of DNA upgrade via some method I, I couldn't describe. They come back, they have kids, and then years later, generations, generations, these other world beings are monitoring the DNA strain potentially to see what happens. Do you think that could be a possibility? Well, uh, let me just say that there's a lot of speculation that one can do. I kind of, when, when I'm in these uh, types of interviews, I hate to get too bogged down in speculation uh, because everybody's got, uh, you know, their pet theories about things. Sure. And what can happen is if I say, yeah, I think that's possible, 
then later on I hear, oh, well, Tom Bowden said such and so. And, <laughs> and then I have to say, well, wait a minute. All I was doing was agreeing that someone's speculation uh, about a certain, you know, hypothesis or whatever is possible. That's all I was saying. Sure. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that uh, makes things interesting. And yet I'm not always sure that it's, <laughs> it's that helpful. It's, yeah. I, I'm not the, sure it's productive. The, well, the layman, the layman can't, you know, they're, the layman is looking to discredit this, especially the people that are actually afraid because I tried to, and let's talk about this for a second. I tried to kind of pinpoint why people have this people and by, by people, I mean, humans have this kind of underlying fear of extraterrestrials and I, and what, what or just the concept of extraterrestrial life. And the conclusion that I came to was that we're sitting on the top of the food chain here on earth. And we sit at the top of our pedestal. We look down and we say, why are we here? Why are we here? Why are we here? But then we look at all the life forms that are below us. We say, why are we here? But at least we're at the top of the food chain. But why are we here? It's a great mystery. But with the introduction of the information of extraterrestrial life being real, then that changes the perspective because it's not wondering why are we here from the top of the pyramid? It's wondering why are we here from now three, potentially four or five levels down? Because we don't even know how advanced those other beings are. So I think that that's part of the underlying philosophy of the fear of extraterrestrial life. Why do you think personally people are afraid in general of the concept of adapting to extraterrestrial life being real? Uh, once again, you're getting into uh, a speculative area and I don't, I don't know. I, uh, do you not think people are mostly afraid? I think there is a fear. Okay. I think that that in general, there's a natural fear of the unknown on the part of humans. Right. Uh, you know, we we want to think because we have uh, a a brain that is unique compared to many other animals in that we are able to control our environment uh, to to a large degree. Uh, and create uh, an infrastructure for ourselves that that makes our environment uh, more habitable and less full of threats like wild animals and things like that, uh, and ultimately, you know, maybe uh, protection from the elements and so on and so forth. We want to be in control, and when there's something that we feel we cannot control, that's uh, creates a fearful situation, uh, you know, and it, and and I think that that the possibility of extraterrestrials is part of that fearful situation because it's out of our control. Yeah, it's out of our control. Right. Uh, let me give you an example of a kind of thing that happens. One of the people that we used that used to come to our meetings. I haven't seen her in a while, but I, you know, I I know she's out there. Uh, she had had a number of bizarre experiences in her life and she is an artist and she has done some interesting illustrations of something she's seen. Well, one story she related to us was, and it came with a illustration by the way, was that she was at work and she went to lunch with some coworkers. And I don't recall now whether it was in the office parking lot or the restaurant parking lot. 
they uh, were they looked up in the sky and they saw a huge like dark gray black towering thunderhead with with sun at the top so you know the top parts were kind of a golden color and the bottom parts were deep blackish gray but she saw golden orb like objects swirling in a in a spiral pattern within the cloud and she and her and she pointed it out to her coworkers and they looked at it too and they said oh wow interesting and she said well what do you think they are and then she started trying to talk to them about what they were seeing and she discovered that none of them wanted to look anymore once they had looked they immediately basically shut that off it was like they went into denial mode it they didn't want to talk much. about it anymore <laughs> sensory overload yeah and and it, she could not get them to to reference the the incident at all and you know in subsequent moments <sighs> and she realized that it was just something they didn't want to deal with they did not want to integrate that into their reality and and you find that among certain people and uh when uh, we have we have meetings uh, whenever I can get the get it together and hold a meeting, uh, it's been challenging lately. I've got to come up with something we can do over Zoom. Uh, but when we have meetings, the people who attend our meetings are all people that are very interested in the subject and they want to talk about it. And one of the things they always say is, "We love your meetings because it gives us a, a chance to talk about the subject." Uh, we can't talk about it with, you know, our other friends, the our family person. members. They don't want to talk about it or they make fun of it. They, you know, as soon as we bring it up, they make jokes and they don't understand that the jokes are hurtful. Let it, me tell you, <laughs> there's a lot of people that are going to be eating some crow here pretty quick. Yeah. They're going to have to have crow buffet chain all over the world because there's going to be yes. so much crow eating. Yes, there's a big, it's. You know, I, I, I feel that there's a, definitely a sea change happening right now in this attitude about the UFOs being, you know, the subject of, of ridicule and a bunch of nonsense. Because now that the, the military and the Pentagon have acknowledged that they've been studying this subject for years and years, uh, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to definitely yeah. change people's attitudes. Well, there's been some big news if you're into ufology and you and or even if you're just noticing in the mainstream news, the Pentagon announced that they have off-world craft. They literally said, "quote unquote," off-world craft that they've been studying, made of materials not of this earth. "Quote unquote." Um, now, could okay. that be a play on words? Could that be them saying, like, let's say China manufactured like a rocket on the moon or something, some secret moon mission? Like, could that be like a play on words? Could they be saying, oh, it's off-world, meaning the moon, not on this earth, meaning made elsewhere? Now you're getting into speculation. Yeah, I, know, again, I don't but, want to speculate. But what, what I want to say about that is uh, you, 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 when, when you start saying the Pentagon said, uh, I would caution everyone to really find a, find a reputable art, article from uh, a good source. You know, somebody who's really like, oh, the war zone is, is a website that's a good source, okay? The Daily Mirror is not, okay? <laughs> now, read, read what they say because the Pentagon hasn't really 100% uh, 
acknowledge those things. What you're really talking about is people like uh, Chris, I'm sorry, Chris Mellon uh, and uh, I forget the other guy's name. Some of these people that used to be in the CIA or in other intelligence agencies and now they're, they're retired, they're no longer involved, they're coming out and saying, oh, yes, I know that such and so is true, that we had these things. Now, you're going to find that some of the statements from these people aren't going to be automatically uh, acknowledged as true by the Pentagon, at least not officially. And so it's very tricky. It's a tricky area. Now, what the, the Pentagon has really acknowledged is, yes, we have been studying UFOs. We, we did have a project to study UFOs, or UAP as they prefer to call them. Unidentified aerial phenomenon. Yeah. And the, the, one of the reasons I believe that they prefer UAP is because UFO has acquired so much cultural baggage over the years. When you, most of the people, when you talk about UFOs, they don't, they don't understand that, well, for MUFON, for example, as a MUFON investigator, to me, when I tell people that I'm investigating UFOs, I'm saying I'm investigating cases of unidentified flying objects. I'm not saying they're alien spacecraft, but most people, when you say UFOs, they immediately jump to the conclusion, oh, UFO, uh, alien. Uh, alien spacecraft, right? And I say not necessarily because not we necessarily. can't. The problem is we can't prove that, and and so, and so, when when you get into, uh, you try to get into discussions with, you know, uh, traditional academic people about the subject. Uh, they don't want to talk about things that could discredit them or or draw them into a, a, a strange discussion that that is distasteful to them and yeah, it's could not possibly in, hurt their yeah, reputation. Yeah, it it, it's not in sync with their profession and their right. paradigm of learning that they've been involved with. I have noticed that uh, Michio Kaku is, is a little bit more liberal about how he talks about these things lately, and that's, that's good. good. He's a smart uh, guy. Yeah, and Scientific American ran an op-ed by a couple of their, not not an official uh, editorial from the editorial board, but rather an op-ed by some of their science, uh, contributing science, scientists that said, hey, you scientists, you should be willing to study UAPs because we don't know what they are, but they're potentially interesting subject matter for us as scientists to study. And they brought up the, what was that thing called? Oumuamua or something. The, it was a, it was oh, a piece the, of, the, the asteroid. Yeah. The it asteroid. was like an asteroid the giant type asteroid thing. That was like cutting through the solar system in a right. pattern that was unlike any other uh, celestial object. It seemed well, yeah, like a craft. Because the object didn't, it, it wasn't in, in orbit. Right. Uh, around our sun. It was coming from outside our solar system, taking a path that clearly meant it came from outside. And what what the people at first looked at it said was they didn't say for sure it was uh, artificial or that it was intelligently controlled. They said it could be because they didn't understand its trajectory. It didn't make sense to them that it would take, the trajectory it did 
And so they just left it open as one of the possibilities that it was a that it was an artificially controlled craft of some sort, but they didn't really know. And uh, it's very elongated in shape, not like most of the asteroids we see. But it right. was it was much longer than you know. Its 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 proportions were very out of whack in terms of length versus width. Well, you know, you've been studying this. You said forty five years longer yeah. than I've been alive. Right. And uh, so I know that you've developed some personal theories right. that are yours. That you own them. There's not move on. It's you. So we know, I believe in extraterrestrial life. I've, I've seen incredible things. I just want to know why, what, what is their purpose? In your opinion, this is just your opinion. It has nothing to do with MUFON, but is your opinion. Like, why are they here? What is their purpose? Are they trying to get us to j- join their galactic uh, community? Or do they want us to evolve? Or what do you think, in your opinion? Well, I, I really don't know, but, but the only thing that I will say in that area is that, first of all, there's other hypotheses other than the what we call the ET hypothesis, extraterrestrial hypothesis, is that, yeah, these are beings flying spacecraft here from somewhere else. Uh, they're part of some alien civilization. Okay, that's one. Then there's the time traveler hypothesis. I was going to ask uh, you about that. And the tricky thing about that is that uh, we don't know how time travel could be done, but, you know, the people like Einstein wouldn't rule it out. Right. That's the uh, Einstein-Rosen bridge is the wormhole, and I think they had some things. Right. And then, and then uh, I mean, way back, if you go way back to relativity, Einstein really made a— uh, an equivalency between space and time in his arguments. And and so you say, well, if someone can travel through space, maybe they can travel through time. Uh, other, other ideas are, okay, these beings have lived here for a long time. They're just good at hiding. Right, they're I watching us. They could be pre-human. Yeah. Living in the mountains, living in these undersea bases potentially, because we've sure. seen so many underwater UFOs. Right, and there's and if you uh, look at some of the books by what's that guy's name? I'm trying to think of it right Michael now. Michael Cremo, Forbidden Archaeology. No, there's a, <laughs> there's there's a there's a better source. Okay, uh, he wrote Undersea under, Undersea Bases. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. That's but, okay. We'll Google but, it later. Uh, his progression was this. He said, "Okay, look, our military has." excavated some really amazing uh, under underground bases uh, and they've done it very quietly and secretly without people know people knowing they have ways of di- dis- disposing of the excavation material uh, that so people won't notice you know they don't put a big pile right by the mouth of the tunnel right uh, and then you see the kind of Technology that allows people to do things like uh, build a channel under the English Channel. Yeah, and so and so the technology to build an undersea underground base exists. There's no question about that. And so our military themselves could be doing this. So and and we 
know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the floor of our oceans. Which is wild, because this is our planet. You think yeah. we would know. We just don't have enough, uh, you know, information about what's all down there. So, so, so the, the possibilities are, are very large as to where these beings come from. So if you th- ask me what I think, I don't think it really so much matters where they're coming from. Uh, but another thing I think is they're a lot more like us than some people uh, would imagine. And and if you if you wonder what they're doing here, I think they're more interested in us, we, uh, us humans, than they are in the planet per se. In other words, I don't think they're here to export our natural, uh, exploit our natural resources, or anything like that. And I don't think they're here to destroy us or to eat us, because why? We don't we don't see that t- type of activity. Occurring. It would have already happened. You, you feel? Yes. Like. Yeah. And uh, but but what we see is they take an interest in people. When when people are abducted, they find that they're being studied. Some in some cases they feel that they're part of some sort of a breeding program. This this alien hybrid type activity, and that's been thoroughly studied. I think there's a good argument for this to be actually happening. Uh, the, 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 the nuclear installation business, I think, uh, should we should look at that and say, oh, they're concerned because they know how dangerous uh, it is to be playing around with nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. And as you know, uh, we humans do not have a stellar record on that regard. We've, yeah. we've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> And uh, we've created a lot of dangerous nuclear waste. They might be looking at us essentially like, uh, you know, like monkeys in the laboratory flipping switches. We're like, ooh, yeah. ooh, ah, what does this do? What does this do? They're like, oh, yeah. my God, they have alien, They have uh, nuclear technology. Well, oh, my God. Those guys. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I like to point out is that when did, when did we start uh, exploding nuclear bombs? That 47. Was, yeah. Well, before that. Oh, right. Okay, 1945, we started testing nuclear bombs maybe a little before that. We have built, uh, you know, some incredibly huge uh, technological installations for producing nuclear fuels. The Hanford Reservation, for example. Uh, And then we did all these tests in the atmosphere, you know, white sands and so forth. Uh, Well, uh, you know, when a nuclear explosion goes off, it sends an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, uh, and those things can go a long way. So you think they could have sent some sort of signal, which then activated them to realize we're at a certain level of advancement. Yeah, it's possible that they they picked up that, that oh, there's a nuclear weapons went off there on that planet known as Earth. We better go find out what's going on. <laughs> uh, so... Around the time of World War II, we already had UFOs. There were, there were uh, the so-called uh, uh, Foo, Foo Fighters. There were other objects too being seen. And then, but but shortly after World War II, around 1947, 
we had a huge wave. Some people think about Roswell, but the, as being a seminal event or something, and and certainly it was a major event. But a lot of things happened right around that time. There were other alleged crash saucer events, and there was the the whole uh, business with what's his name, uh, uh, Ken Arnold, seeing the Kenneth Arnold seeing the uh, the objects which. He described as moving as if they were saucers skipping over the water, and that led to the term flying saucers. Right, and that was in right here in the Northwest. It was. That was in Washington. Yeah, it was in Washington, and he landed in Pendleton and was uh, uh, approached by reporters who heard him explain what he saw, and they took the term flying saucer, and it became common uh, parlance then. You know, one red flag for me— and I want to know if you've heard about this. I think you have. There's some ancient, uh, or excuse me, I shouldn't say ancient, but older alien sightings of the Old West. In the late 1800s, there was a report of a crash that happened in a town, I believe in Texas. Um, the craft crashed. They recovered a body. They um, wrote about it in the local paper. You know, and they buried the body in town. I, I, don't, I don't think that, uh, on close examination, that that story does not have a uh, good provenance. It's it's a. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. I'm trying to think of the name of it. It was, uh, yeah, it was in North Texas, and it was only around 1898 or something like that. Uh, and I'm trying to think it. It's known by the name of the town. I can't remember what it was. But, that- but I I suggest that this is a possible fabrication. Uh, I don't think I don't think we can put too much uh stock in that story. Okay. Now uh, I want to yeah. know uh what are uh like uh, Well, well, well I would like to continue well, talking about 1947. Yeah, please. Because go ahead, many please. people don't realize <laughs> that there were a lot of UFOs sighted in 1947. There in Portland Portland had a huge wave of sightings uh, in July, around July 4th, and that's right around the time that we think the Roswell, Roswell crash happened. You have to realize that the, the problem with the Roswell incident is we don't know exactly when the crash happened. What we're basing it on is when the people at the Army base, it was an Army airfield, by the way, found out about it. And it was around July 8th when the discovery of this, the news got into town and was relayed to the Army, uh, the Army Air Force, Air Force Base. And then they sent men out to start collecting debris and figuring out what, what happened. Uh, so, so it could have crashed as early as July 4th or, it could or, have, or around there. It, fifth, could have, it could have been, you know, at least up to a week before possibly. Uh, another thing to realize is that um, Roswell Army Airfield was where we had our most of our nuclear weapons, our atomic bombs of the era, and the planes that delivered them. The Enola Gay that dropped a bomb on Hiroshima came from Roswell Army Airfield. Well, people don't and, realize, too, that there were rocket tests in 1947 that were happening yeah. in Roswell, New Mexico. Well, yeah, they would have. That's that's an airfield there, uh, and the other thing to realize is that 
place where they found the debris, it's it's a long way from the town of Roswell. So it didn't happen in Roswell, but Roswell was a focus because of the Army airfield there and because the men of the Army airfield were involved. Now, all these men had high, high security clearances because they worked with the nuclear weapons of the time. And it was really one of the reasons they put them out there. Roswell's in the middle of nowhere. Honestly, it's a long way from Roswell to any other big town. And uh, there's nothing around there but prairies, uh, semi-arid prairies with uh, pronghorns running around, barbed wire fence for miles and miles along the road. You don't see much of anything out there when you drive to Roswell. And so the idea was that it was a small town. If there was anyone that showed up there that, that people didn't know, they would know that person's not from around there. Yeah, that'd be so a they could be flag. a spy. You know, you don't know. But they didn't want the Russians to know where we had our bombs. And, you uh, know, because they were the ones to worry about at that time. Right. Now, and, and so, well, but one of the things that happened in 1947 is there were flying saucer sightings on the, in the newspapers, on the radio, all over. Television was just in its infancy, so there wasn't much going on in television yet. But uh, between radio and uh, the newspapers, there was a lot of publicity about the flying saucer sightings. And a lot of people were seeing them all across the country. By sometime in August, all these stories disappeared from the media. Now, it isn't really a question of the (laughs) flying saucer stopped appearing it was the way, it was the influence of government agencies on the, the news media that, that said we don't want people to talk about that stuff. Stop publishing stories about flying saucers. Now, what about the correlation in 1947 with the amount of technology advancement that happened? Seems like there was a big leap in a lot of different uh, sectors. Not long after 1947, in that crash. I think you're talking about the the the. The Things theory like fi- that fiber there optics was, and that the alien technology was seeded into our industries. I don't buy it. Really? This was promoted by the the book by uh, okay. uh Colonel Corso. Right. Uh, Jerome Corso. Yeah. Um Yeah, it was called uh, uh The Day After Roswell. But you don't you're not into it. You don't think no. so. Yeah, Philip Corso, by the oh, way. Oh, Philip, sorry. Yeah. No. I think that that's uh you have to realize Philip Corso was uh, had a career in Army intelligence. Okay, you typically, okay, you can you can use an army a, a military intelligence person as a source, but always take what they say with a grain of salt, because you never know whether they're telling you the truth. They could be telling you a story that they want you to think is true so that you'll spread it among your friends. This is the essence of disinformation. Now, in, the, in this day and age, in the last, uh, since the 2016 presidential election, we should all understand what we're talking about here. Also known as fake news, uh, right. disinformation, uh, and there are people who are experts at creating 
disinformation. And they don't all work for the Russians. Many of them work for our government. Now, uh, some what people do you think have seen, the purpose of that? What is the purpose of our government creating a disinformation campaign in this regard, in your opinion? In the UFO field? Yes. To, to cause dissension and chaos among UFO researchers, serious like, UFO researchers. To make it seem like woo-woo out there science yes. fiction. So if I'm, if I'm trying to have serious interchanges with people about the subject matter, I'm always being uh, hit by stuff that I hear from other people promoting what I consider to be wacky uh, out there uh, theories or ideas. And, you know, some of these things that people come up with, sure, they may turn out to be true, but in general, the people who are, are spreading this stuff on the Internet, they don't do any research. They don't do any checking of the background of the story. They just pretty much repeat what they hear. Yeah, they like say, oh, oh, I heard this really neat story about the secret space force that we've had since such and so year where all these people have gone to all these other planets and they have interacted with alien beings. This is the kind of story. There are certain people who promote this, and I'm not even uh, (laughs) going to do them the honor of mentioning their names, but they promote this stuff on the Internet, and they have whole uh, YouTube channels and websites that promote this stuff. And to me, I think it's a bunch of bunk. Now, I may be proved wrong someday, but at this point, my feeling is, the burden is of proof is on them, and right. they never come up with any proof. The, so talk is cheap. You can make up a story and spread it all over the Internet and say it's true, but, hey, show me the evidence. Yeah, you know, there is that new thing recently. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there was a hack <clears throat> recently, a 17-year-old hacked into the NSA database and looking for information about alien technologies and uh, discovered a roster of astronauts with designations that are out of this world. They're like talking about USS so-and-so different astronauts that were on duty with schedule in, in their uh, paperwork. You know, they had specific designations as far as their command structure. They had specific duties that were related to off world. A lot of it was off world personnel. Did you see that? I've heard of it. I this just, just happened think, recently. Uh, you know, that sounds suspiciously like the recycling of a story that came up several years ago. And uh, I don't know. The, these things these things keep coming back. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's and, hard. You know, you it's know, just hard to say. I don't, I don't think, you know, I think this is uh, one of those stories. It's like, okay, one of the things that I've heard, and this keeps coming back, people will say, oh, Mars is closer than it's been in decades uh it's almost going to look as big as the moon and all this kind of stuff and yet you dig around and you go to reputable uh sites having to do with um astronomy I mean, uh, astronomy like and you find yeah the moon is having going through a closer approach to earth but it's nowhere anywhere close enough for it to look almost as big as the moon. And, but, but every once in a while, the same story 
resurfaces on the internet because there's too many people that just keep passing it on and passing it on and it's it's, it's just, just like the gossip chain it's just like the rumor mill you know one thing i did want to ask you is that as a mufon investigator in your career what what do you think maybe not a percentage but how many cases do you come across that are you would just qualify as mental illness like okay you met somebody they swear they saw this and that but then clearly they have the indicators of mental illness. Have you come into contact with that? I have some, yes, but they're not, I wouldn't say they're a major uh, percentage. It's probably a single digit percentage of cases. Okay. Really, One out of a hundred. One out of a hundred. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Uh, less, probably less than one of a hundred, one out of a hundred. Uh, and typically, UFO witnesses typically are just ordinary people. You know they have they have jobs usually they're they're you know somewhat sure. educated. Some people are only high school education. Some people have college degrees. Some people even have uh, advanced degrees, and they're they're just regular people that have had an unusual experience. Right. You know, I was in Sedona, Arizona, and I was at one of the vortexes. Do you know about the vortexes in Sedona? I've heard of them. Okay, don't so know much about them. in Sedona, and they're all, on all the tourist maps and everything. There's these vortexes they call energy vortexes. There's seven different ones around Sedona. Now these were identified <clears throat> by the Native Americans of prehistory, and they kind of designated certain areas as vortexes. And you go to these places, and it's like you feel energy just swirling around you. You feel pressure, like actual pressure. You start to feel like elevated like you're almost like leaving your body in a very strange way well i was at one of these vortexes with my children a couple of years ago we were taking some photos my son's uh brother my other son miles he took three pictures in succession the first picture was him of his and his brother the second picture had an object in it the third picture did not now we didn't realize this until we got home we're looking at the pictures. Actually, not even home. We were at uh, Salt Lake City at my partner's mom's house. We're looking at the pictures. In one frame, there's a clear craft. Hmm. It has windows. It's reflecting light. It's silver. You can see indentations. It has a lot of definition for what you can see. So for me, I know that that stuff is real. Um, and I've had those experiences. but And it's in a physical sense. But I'm wondering, there's people that talk about uh, extraterrestrials being interdimensional. So not necessarily coming from a physical world, but coming from a different spatial dimension that either we have to raise our personal energy to our vibration to uh, access, or they have to figure out a different way to come into our reality. Um, is that something you've heard in the past? Well, I, I hear a lot of stories of people having experiences like that. Uh, honestly, if you talk about, um, a place in Arizona, I don't get like, if they're, if the reports go to MUFON, I don't get reports of events in Arizona. I only get reports of events in Oregon. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, I'm a little bit, I tend to be skeptical of reports, uh, that associate, a specific place 
with being uh, a focal point, if you will, of UFO activity, because usually I find that that's just a product of the people who are there. And, and, uh, we have found statistically we get more UFO reports with places with a higher population. Uh, it's just stands to reason you have more people, more opportunities for people to see something unusual. And so you get more reports and I'm not just talking about the reports. Some of the, some of which are identified. I'm talking about the actual UFOs, the things that we cannot identify. Right. We get more reports. Now, Occasionally, there's an anomaly that pops out. There's a place in Oregon called Sutherland. It's a small town along I-5 north of Roseburg. I, through the years, I've gotten, uh, amazingly, a, a large number of reports from Sutherland. But about half those reports are from people who are just passing through on I-5. Uh, I think what I finally decided is that Sutherland is in a valley, a very broad, wide valley, so that when you come in over the rise on on I-5, you have a really big, expansive view of the sky, very open sky, big sky, you could call it. And so if there's something to be seen, people are more likely to see it because when they drive through their, 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 the road is very straight, it just, goes gently down and then up again to the next ridge. You don't have a lot of turns to worry about. People are looking around. You know, they're looking at the scenery. So they have more chances to see something unusual. And then the people that live there, they also have a big view. They have this big sky view of things. They have just more chances of seeing unusual things. Uh, it's it's hard to say. Then there's other years when, for some reason, Grants Pass is, has had a higher number of sightings. So I'm not sure I can tell you, oh, yeah, there's a hot spot. This particular place has more UFO reports. I only notice some statistical anomalies that pop out at me from time to time. That's really interesting. That is really, really interesting. Um, One thing I wanted to talk to you about is the history of MUFON. Because I know that MUFON was a nonprofit organization, or is it still a nonprofit? I believe it, it still is. is. But at some point, it was acquired by Bob Bigelow. Is that no. correct? That that is a misconception that okay, keeps coming God. back. Let's let's Bob, clear the air right now. Let's Bob clear Bigelow, it up for people. Bob Bigelow never owned MUFON. Okay, nothing of the sort ever happened. What happened was, and I don't know if you remember. There was uh, this thing with the the uh, AATIP program. They farmed out some uh, research work to Robert Bigelow, uh, who was friends with Harry Reid. So Robert Bigelow has, for a long time, had an in, a very intense interest in the UFO subject. Right. Some of us think maybe he's had some experiences himself, maybe some more than just sightings, maybe more personal experiences with UFOs. But I hate to even speculate because I don't really know. But he he's really interested in it. He made his money in real estate. And after he amassed a, a fortune in real estate, he decided he really loved aerospace. 
And so he decided to found an aerospace company. Bigelow Aerospace. Bigelow Aerospace. I don't even know how much actual aerospace work they do, but one of his uh, things that he got into was doing the research uh, that was, you know, when the AATIP farmed out a contract for research, he grabbed it up and started doing some research. That's why uh, one of the things he did, uh, the Skinwalker Ranch thing, he bought right. that because there were a lot of anomalies there. Uh, and uh, so... And I've heard that he also has a contract with NASA. So when people have MUFON-type situations and they report it to NASA, it then filters back to Bob Bigelow. Well, that's possible. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. It's okay. possible. So what happened was they, they, they made a deal... Way back in like I forget what year it was two thousand eight I think or maybe it was before that, uh, to get MUFON investigators to sort of channel certain kinds types of cases to Bob Bigelow's research team, uh, and they were paying MUFON some money uh, to help out with that. But I got to tell you, one of the problems, and and this is this is just one of those. Things that happens with our legal system, the people that are rich can hire the best lawyers, and the poor nonprofit people, they have you know, with what nonprofit they lawyers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, pro bono or whatever. Pro bono. So when they wrote up the contract, it really was more slanted toward Bobby Bigelow's you know, wants and needs than it was toward MUFONs, and I don't think that contract came out very well on MIFON's side of things. Plus, unfortunately, uh, I think we we found that there was a little too much fast and loose being played with the case data being channeled to Bob Bigelow's organization. Nowadays, we're very careful about that, but uh, someone got a little lax on part of MUFON. Some of those people are no longer with MUFON for this reason. We do not release the in the personal information of our witnesses to anyone without their express without the witnesses express written permission because it's not it's not fair to them they may have confidential confidentiality issues they might not want want word to get back to their employer for example sure. that they reported a ufo and so we protect their identity and uh this wasn't being done properly during that era, the Bob Bigelow era. But to, to, to really, to answer the original question, that was a contract deal where MUFON was uh, channeling information to Bob Bigelow. Bob Bigelow never owned MUFON. Okay. And anyone who says that is just plain wrong. Well, just they, wrong. Don't, they don't know the facts. Midnight on Earth right here, Tom Bowden's telling you right now, you're wrong if you think... Bob Bigelow owns MUFON. He's correcting you right now. Now you just got the right information. Yeah. It never happened. And, thank, and you know, but he just has an interest. You know, like you said, yeah. he's a billionaire. He's got an interest. His logo for Bigelow Aerospace is an alien head, it looks like. Yeah. I mean, he, he's got something going on there. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> what it is, you know, we don't really know. What he, um, what he did own was Skinwalker Ranch. He no longer owns it. But no he did has. buy it as part of the NIDS project, National Institute for Discovery Science. And then they put some some scientists there to study the, the, the things that were going on. 
And I can tell you right now that it was very scary. Uh, all the people that were involved were very unnerved by what was going on at Skinwalker Ranch. And recently the History Channel ran a series where they have some scientists at Skinwalker Ranch studying what's going on. And those guys are doing a fairly good job. I, I like the way they talk. They express things in a really methodical manner. They're trying to apply as much scientific measurement as they can to what's going on. And they're finding things are uh, things that are very disconcerting about the place. It's a little scary. There, some of them have had some uh, medical issues caused by energy sources, maybe, that they don't understand on that property. So wow. that's an interesting thing that's going on there. Wild, wild. Well, Tom, we do have, you know, we're wrapping it up. we got about 10 more minutes left. Is, uh, is there anything that, uh, that you feel like in 2020 people should know about the UFO phenomenon? Yes. Uh, first of all, I will say that UFOs are a real phenomenon. Uh, anyone who says they're not real hasn't looked at the data. Now, one of the questions that people ask me is, do I believe, or they'll, they'll make a statement, oh, so you're a UFO believer. And I tell them, that's not the right way to put it. To me, UFOs are a matter of data, and you can call them UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want. It's a matter of data. When people see things or experience things they don't understand and they report them to MUFON, we take those reports and we analyze them. We try to explain everyone we can as an, as a, as an, an actual identifiable phenomenon. And I can tell you that the people who become MUFON investigators – they go through an actual training course and they taking an exam, which they have to pass with a score of 80% or better to show that they really understand how to do these investigations. And then they go on a, 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 you know, a training with the state director to make sure they understand the material and, and so on and so forth. And so I, you, you've I personally train, I train yeah. the people after they've gone through the initial training at MUFON, I train the people that come come to me in Oregon to, uh, to be investigators. And what I want them to do is have a discipline about things. We gather all the data that we can about the, the date and time and the place of the sighting. Uh, we, we look at the person's profile. What, what is their education level? What, what kind of experience do they have? How do we feel about their personality? Are they a gullible sort or are they a solid, credible person? And then, we do our due diligence. We document everything, and then we come to a conclusion. And, and you have to realize that what a UFO is, it's what's left over when, when you've tried to explain uh, each sighting as something identifiable, but you can't find anything that you can attribute it to. So that's the leftovers, unidentified. And we put those in the database as unidentified. If somebody else comes along and says, oh, I know what that is. I had a case of that in such and so year. And this is why I think this is identified. But we can change it because we say now we have an explanation. For example, when the stealth fighter was first being tested around Edwards Air Force Base in Area 51, 
People were seeing it, reporting it as a triangular UFO. And some of those were put down as triangular UFOs in the MUFON database. Later on, we went back and said, oh, wait a minute. These were stealth fighters. We just didn't know what it was because <laughs> it was a secret. Yeah, it was, you were, they were okay? testing different technologies. Right. This could be happening right now. It could be. So, so uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, to me, UFOs aren't something you believe in. So to me, belief is where I decide whether I believe a witness is credible or not. But as far as the UFOs themselves, it's not something I believe in. They're, they're a, a matter of fact because there's something which we have not been able to identify that competent investigators cannot identify, and therefore they are unidentified, and that's what makes it a UFO. I understand. Now, I, what I want to tell ask you, Tom, is... Uh what does a post, you know, you, you in, you've investigated for 45 years, the culmination of your life work, disclosure happens. What does a post-disclosure world look like? What does it look like after they've told everyone that the aliens are real? Maybe you see a couple flying around like airplanes and it becomes normal. What does that look like to you? What's a post-disclosure world? Well, I don't, I don't think it's really going to affect the day-to-day reality of most people that much i think they're they should just continue to be human human (laughs) continue to live their lives don't let it bother them i mean some people think oh my god if we find out aliens are real people are going to freak out and they're going to run around like chickens with their heads cut off and and say what do we do now what do we do now the aliens are coming to invade us no that's not what's going to happen and and you see right now the disclosure that's happening it's happening more or less gradually. Over two to three years, that's pretty rapid considering what happened historically with UFOs. However, it's still gradual enough that it's not going to freak people out. I don't think people are going to have a mental breakdown because all of a sudden they find out, yeah, there might actually be aliens. Do you think people have better behavior? It's kind of like if you know that you could be like, watch like let's say that you know you think people will be more loving do you think people want to coalesce in this uh, a universal human society do you think that could come from that uh it's possible but let me give you uh, uh uh let me give you an example okay so so there's a lot of people these days who say they believe in god but that doesn't always make them a better person you know there's people that Say they go to they go to church all all the time, and we've seen this. Someone goes to church every Sunday, but when it comes to certain behaviors, it doesn't always make them a better person. You know, they may still be prejudiced against black people. They still might, you know, believe some notion that oh, I shouldn't wear a mask because it might make me sick, and things like that. Just different, uh, uh, just, different frames right. of thinking. But it, so just being, believing in a higher power that is supposed to be a good power doesn't automatically make people a better person. But do you feel like the tangibility of seeing a physical craft might be more direct, like a, give people more of a blunt situation? Now that's two different things. Or just like, you know, just the tangibility, like, you, you know, there's alien life and you've, there's like video evidence, it's physical, 
you know, there's physical evidence. Do you think that might change people? Like some sort of physicality, the craft landing, the the being, knowing the beings are around. Okay, if if someone's just going on, uh, let us say there's a YouTube of a craft landing in a public place, and there are so many witnesses that it's almost certain to be it's undeniable, true, undeniable. The people that are watching this that might have a great impact on them, but I don't think it would be nearly as much of an impact as if they were actually a personal eyewitness and actually present at the event. So we almost need like an alien nation type scenario where there's millions of aliens living among us for it to really have a big impact. You feel? I think that might be true. Yeah. That that might be what it would take for a lot of people. Okay. But it's not going to, just the notion, just the notion isn't going to help people become better. But in a post-disclosure world, we should be doing our best because now we're going to be representing Earth like our sports team. We're, you know, we're the Earthlings and we got to be the best team we can possibly be. That's the hope anyway, right? Well, I suppose it's the hope. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> we can all hope that, you know, but, but one of the things that I've often said, people will, will, will talk about, aliens, for want of a better term, as if they're coming here to help us, to make us better, to to save us from ourselves. Well, my retort to that is, hey, this is our planet. We are responsible for it. Right. We shouldn't be waiting around for somebody from some other planet to come and show us what, how to do things right. It's not up to them. It's our house. We need to clean our house up. Don't start, you know, expecting someone else to come and fix things for you. Yeah, and that's what we need to do. We get once we get our in our house in order, we might be able now this is all just speculation, but we might be able to join that galactic community. And maybe they don't want billboards in space. Maybe they don't want that level of evolution that we're out at now out there in the cosmos influencing. I think that they're probably waiting for us to evolve to get to a point where we can be out there in a harmonious kind of copacetic environment. Yeah, well, that that could be true. There's there's a lot to be said for that. It's it's once again that gets into the speculation, <laughs> but I, but I can certainly say that 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 uh if if there are beings like that that want to come and help us, we certainly at least need to meet them halfway. Well, they seem to really like our cows. Oh, the cows. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting uh I don't know. Thing. Like, you know, we, we've got a few minutes left, but it's, uh, it, it, who knows? Like, you know, you see the evidence. There's surgical precision. They're removing the body parts. There's, it's, yeah. uh, there's even historical records of uh, cattle mutilations they found in the 1700s. Uh, I, th- I think that they're they're harvesting certain organs because they have certain types of there are certain sources of genetic material. That's that's my that's just some speculation, but it to me it's the only thing that really explains cattle mutilations. They're they're leaving you know a lot of beef on the ground. Huge so it's carcasses. not like they're eating the beef. Right. Uh, they're taking certain parts. And I think if you talk to a, a molecular biologist or something, they would say, yeah, those parts have certain uh, cellular parts in them that are important if you want to do 
genetic research, you want certain types of cells that are better for doing research that involves reproduction of cells and so forth. I think that's probably what's going on, although Who knows? That's, that's a pretty mysterious area. It's almost, it's one of those areas that the connection to UFOs is a little tenuous anyway, although I think we have seen enough cases where there were UFOs present and then shortly afterward a mutilated cow was found. Yeah, you know, maybe they just, th- these certain parts taste so good to aliens. Well, I don't think, <laughs> honestly, I don't think it's food. No, definitely not. It's probably I, more I, genetic. I it or makes if, more it, sense. if it is food, it's cultured food. It's they're growing something and then using that for food. Right. And I almost think that maybe it's food for baby hybrids or something like that. Oh. I don't think, you know, I don't think it's like just Oh, that's an amazing food. theory. That's something I've never heard before. So they're potentially harvesting these organs to develop a food system that's palatable to the hybrids that they've created over time that so many abductees talk about. They yeah. get their semen harvested or they're impregnated, yeah. and then the baby is, you know, taken right. month six or whatever. They get another sighting, the baby's gone. Well, then the other thing is the, that the um, the whole thing of, of uh, alien visitors is, okay, let's say they've come from a long way away. Uh, even though they can travel a lot faster than we can through space, it's still... They're they're just not gonna fly home for lunch every right. day, right? <laughs> yeah. So they must have a way to supply some kind of, uh, you know, it's 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 just like the 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 uh, paradigm of the army. Uh, an army travels on its stomach. You have to have a supply chain for your armed forces. You can't right. just send them out there with no way to get them any of the supplies they need. It's the same thing's going to happen. If you've got visitors from from far away, they have to have some way to support all the the needs they have, their energy needs, their their food needs, and whatever. We don't know very much about their biology, that's for sure, and uh, maybe just as little about their technology. But there's one thing we do know, and that's that, you know, energy isn't free. People talk about free energy, but I'm sorry, there's no free energy. What they're talking about is alternative energy sources that don't require burning fossil fuels and stuff, but that's not necessarily free. Energy comes from somewhere. Even if you're, you know, I got solar panels here, right? Maybe that's, uh, that maybe that's free in a way because we get sunshine all the time, unless it's cloudy, but... You know, that's free in a sense, but it's not really free. I had to pay for those. Right. So, you know. And it took resources to make I'm still the paying solar for cells. And- yeah. Actually, they were done for free, but that means they're owned by the, they're owned by the energy company. It's now Tesla, by they, the way. Oh, cool. Tesla Power owns those solar panels on a 20-year lease, but, and they control the system. So we get a break on our energy bill. But yes, we're still paying PGE for... So you're saying there is resources required, whether you're an interstellar, intergalactic uh, civilization, type 1, type 2, however far you want to go, you, yeah. you still need some sort of energy that requires some sort of expense. That's right. Whatever gonna, that expense uh, ends up. That's right. You're going to get energy from something. And, uh, even if you hover over the power lines and tap power from the power grid, 
and with, uh, which we think some UFOs have done. So you, you but, after 45 years of research, the only thing you can really say is that there is something out there and there's a lot more going on than we think in the casual day-to-day thinking. Is that uh, correct? That is pretty much it. Yeah. I think we, <laughs> we're just babes in the woods. We're trying to understand something that is so complex and so far out there that we're just not, we may not be ready to really understand it. We're still, we might still have yeah. to develop our IQs as humans, you know, 100, 200 years down the road to even process some of the information that these guys are using right now. I think so. And some of the uh, intelligence, deep, deep black project intelligence people have been studying this for years have come to that conclusion as well. They've, they've gotten to the point where they say, wow, this is way deeper than we thought. We don't understand enough to really implement any of these technologies so you know this this is things that that we've heard from some of the guys like chris mellon and and some of the other gentlemen that are involved they, now with the the uh to the stars academy they just essentially hit a brick wall with yeah the maximum and most advanced human thinking still right. can't comprehend these technologies yeah well well tom bowden I just want to thank you for being here, Midnight on Earth. Uh, it's been an yeah. incredible podcast. Do you, Oregon MUFON, if you have seen anything, if you ever have a sighting, don't hesitate to contact your local MUFON chapter. Well, let me let me correct that. Uh-oh. If, if you have a sighting, don't contact the local chapter directly. Go to MUFON.com, click on the link to report a UFO, and enter all the information that's requested and and your report will come if you if you had an incident in Oregon it will come to the Oregon UFON chapter but we need to gather all your information into our database and that's why we ask people to report it through mufon.com so you have a sighting you go to mufon.com you report that if you happen to be living in Oregon you might be interacting with Tom and Keith you don't know yet, but you know, if you don't live in Oregon, you're going to interact with somebody, but we want to thank you so much for being here. Thank it's, uh, you've been great having you as a thank guest. Mufon.com. And thank you so much, Tom. Have a great night. <laughs> <laughs>